A while back, when we produced our second podcast, I was totally drawn into this David and Goliath story of an activist group in the Central Valley called National Land for People that took on the farming establishment and got so close to carving up the vast land of the valley so that small farmers and farm workers could own it. But the story was kind of wonky. It was hard to describe, hard to get people interested in, and it was ultimately a story of loss. So it wasn't 100% clear, I think, for some listeners about why they should tune in now to hear about failed dreams of a small group of radicals working 30 years ago. Still, I loved the story. And if you haven't heard it, here's the thumbnail sketch of podcast number two, which we called Can Land Belong to Those Who Work It? Until 1982, there was this law in the books, the 1902 Reclamation Act, that limited the size of farms that were allowed to use government-subsidized irrigation water. And this was true all across the western U.S. Those farms were limited to just 160 acres. It's kind of an abstract number, a little bit hard to picture. That's much, much smaller than the kind of massive scale agricultural development that characterizes California farming in general and the Central Valley, really, in particular. The Calag Roots story we called Can Land Belong to Those Who Work It told the story of an activist group called National Land for People that fought to enforce the Reclamation Act. And they came close to achieving real land reform in California's Central Valley only 30 years ago. Today, with so many social justice fires burning across so many parts of California, our country, and our courts, the story seems suddenly more relevant to me. It's not wilder and less possible, but almost more so. I think if there's one thing the Trump presidency has taught us, it's that all bets are off. All the old rules don't apply, anything can happen, and it can happen really, really fast. And radical solutions suddenly seem more than called for, especially in response to radical right-wing actions. My interview guest today, Dr. Mario Cifuentes, didn't mince words when I asked him if he thought National Land for People's idea about land and farming reform was still viable. It has to be or else we're all going to die. We have to come up with alternative solutions uh, and alternative ways to feed people and grow food or else, you know, we're looking at, at, at like extinction level events. I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and my conversation with Mario gets right to the point like that a lot. It's the second conversation in our new series called Digging Deep, Conversations with Food Movement Leaders. Calag Roots, the project I direct, is unearthing hidden histories about California farming. And in these Digging Deep conversations, I'll be talking with folks about why they think Calag Roots stories are relevant to current work to change our food and farming systems. For this particular Digging Deep episode, it might be helpful to listen to podcast number two, Can Land Belong to Those Who Work It, or re-listen to that story if you heard it a while back. Even I went back and listened to it again after I talked to Mario. You'll follow Mario's insightful comments a lot better if the story's fresh in your mind. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at agroots.org or wherever you get podcasts. If you're going to jump right into this conversation with us today, you've got to at least be familiar with the Westlands Water District, which was the setting for the National Land for People battle. It's about a 600-acre swath of California's San Joaquin Valley, and it produces about a billion dollars worth of food and fiber. It's also irrigated by massive state and federal aqueducts that channel water from equally massive reservoirs and the Sacramento Delta. Westlands, as you'll hear in our original podcast, and again in my conversation with Mario, it's kind of like its own character in this story. Okay, 
Now that everyone's geographically oriented and knows where to find the original story, let's dive into this Digging Deep episode with Associate Professor of History at UC Merced, Mario Cifuentes. Mario, do you consider yourself a part of the food movement? Is that a part of your identity? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's an interesting question. Am I a part of the food movement? Um, In so much that I grow food, I study food, uh, you know, I I belong to some organizations. Um, Yes, uh, I think I am. I think, you know, anybody who who thinks about where their food comes from is part of is part of the movement. I'm hoping to talk to people who are like putting the work, the storytelling work that I've done, like a little bit to use somehow. And um, definitely your upcoming book, right, on um, the NLP story and like sort of unexplored aspects of that story fits in that vein. But Mario, I was thinking as I was getting ready for this conversation today, when I came out there I came there to talk to you about the Rosero program and that was like super relevant to your first book and the work that you had done I was talking about National Land for People and you were just like can I come with you to Sun Mountain (laughs) remember like that was like we went out there together and we're we were like what is this place that was the first kind of we were just kind of peeling back the lid on the National Land for People story so I, I guess I would love to hear like uh, maybe if you can give me like the update on what your thinking is around that story now, and um, and we could talk a little bit about why that story caught you like that. Why is it so interesting to you? So I think it came from a couple of different places, right? It came from um, that trip that we took, and then knowing that it was connected to the work that Janaki was doing in the Westlands as well, right? And so I started thinking about the Westlands as the project and the NLP being a part of that story. And the Westlands is like this really, there's something very, I don't know, like, I don't know, has a certain kind of energy out there, right? There was like this millenarianist preacher woman out there in the 1890s, um, you know, all at, at Three Rocks. And she like had this like thousands or 2,000, there's 3,000 people out there like waiting for the, waiting for the rapture at the turn of the century in the 1900. And she like to, they duped all these people to come out there and watch her preach or whatever. And then like at midnight, she like sneaks away into three rocks and like disappears and nobody ever finds her again. And so, you know, it's just something about that place, right? That's this, I don't know. It has this kind of magic to it. What is it about Westlands that you have to be a religious fanatic basically? To work there. Maybe it's the heat. Maybe it's the vastness. <laughs> maybe it's like, yeah, you know, a yeah, lot yeah. of stuff. But uh, but yeah, it's it's it has some, it has a certain kind of. I mean, magic might be too too um, like too generous, right? Like, it's not quite as positive as magic you might think about. But like, it's it's something. There's something there. A kind of like, yeah, like an emptiness out there right that needs to be filled somehow right and uh you know there's no social life there's no civil life right there's no uh there's nowhere to go right there's nothing to do i mean people say that about a lot of places oh there's nothing to do but i mean there's really literally nothing in there right like camps and work and like that's it mario's working on a new book about the westlands some of his research stemmed from that first trip we took to the nlp headquarters 
and our conversations about George Ballas, who was one of the founders of NLP and was really a driving force behind the organization. Here's how the book is. I'm conceiving the book. Yes, right? great. The first chapter is going to be about the sort of formulation of water politics in California and how the Westlands comes into being, right? Um, you know, they're, they're the large corporations, the Chevrons, the Shells, whatever, are buying up land out there. And what they do is they hit water. They don't hit oil, right? And so they're, you know, going to switch gears and start farming. The first chapter, I think, is going to be about AWOC and Maria Moreno. And she was this, like, dynamic organizer who lives out in the Westlands, works out in the Westlands. Some of her story is in the NLP archive. Um, she gives this, like, really powerful testimony about her life and about what she's – about her history and as a farm worker and organizer. She becomes this, like – really mythic figure. And the second chapter is going to look at Bard McAllister, who was this Quaker um, who essentially was carrying out this plan of uh, what they called self-help enterprises, um, but it ultimately doesn't really have any effect on the well-being of farm workers in the valley. And so I think I'm taking sort of a critical lens or a critical look at sort of philanthropy in the Westlands, right, and, and the efforts to sort of stymie or st stave off um, poverty and starvation, et cetera, in, in the area. And so that's, that's, that predates NLP and George Ballas. Uh, mm -hmm. Then George and the NLP are the ones who, who, who come in next. I think the fourth chapter of the book is to sort of examine this kind of alternative possibility of farming in California for farmers mm -hmm. in particular. Our conversation turned back to the place where Mario's work intersects with the Calag Roots story about National Land for People and George Ballas. Mario has done a lot of work on the history of the United Farm Workers, so it was only a little surprising that he referred to the famous UFW leader Cesar Chavez by his first name as we talked. I don't know how much of this story, this part of the story you know, but he he writes a letter to, to Caesar uh, and asks Caesar to sort of, he says, you know, hey, uh, uh, you know, I'm all for the union. I've been a supporter of the union. And I've worked for the union. But and then at the end of the day, if we don't deal with this water situation, uh, you know, th there's an unequal balance of power here, no matter how strong the union gets, right? The farmers are always going to have more power. He's like, what we need to do is look into this 160-acre limitation, break up these farms, and hand the land over to farm workers. Yeah. What are you finding? So the letter, the letter, the response that Caesar writes back to George, or somebody writes back to George, is pretty blunt, and, and uh, it just says no. Wow. Wait. So you have the le original letter from George to Cesar Chavez. He writes in a big, in big, in a big pen, uh, big blue pen. He writes on the letter, no, and that's it. I can't find any actual correspondence back. Do you think that, do you take that piece of paper, the letter from George with the no written on it as like evidence of a UFW organizational leadership conversation? Like, do you think, do you, do you look at that and go, somebody talked about this at a meeting and decided not to go that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how, that's how I see it. I see it as like, as sort of a just sort of you know because in many ways the nlp was thought of as like crazies right they're a bunch of crazies this isn't like a real thing this isn't like you're not going to get this to happen and i just found it the tone of it was like i mean it's hard to say tone it's one word but it, it, i read it as really dismissive right mm -hmm. that there was no i couldn't find like 
meeting minutes or anything else where people were like sat there and talked about it, right? And and seriously considered this as an option. Mm-hmm. Um, the only clue that I have as to what they were thinking ultimately is Dolores Huerta's testimony before Congress uh, and Adlai Stevenson here in Fresno on the 160-acre limitation. And so Adlai Stevenson had actually been, along with George Miller and some other Democratic reps, had been um, very much – had been allies of George Ballas and the NLP. And so they were holding these hearings to investigate, you know, the possibility of this 160-acre, um, you know, redistribution, right? And Adley Stevenson asked Dolores, you know, well, what about this 160-acre limitation? Have you guys ever thought about pursuing this? And Dolores says, you know, we're we're having a hard time getting them to pay us $1.75 an hour, and you think that we're going to get land from them. And she's like, that's a really nice pipe dream, but, you know, it's just not going to happen. And Adley is, like, agitated by this, right? And he says, no, no, you're not really listening. Like, there's this law. We can redistribute it. And the possibility is very real that we can do this. Would the UFW be in favor of something like this? And Dolores says, farm workers don't want to be farmers. Mm-hmm. That is such a powerful moment. And so uh, that was kind of, and, and, she was, and she's like, and besides, where are we going to find the money to buy land? And Adley, again, Adley Stevenson is frustrated by this conversation. He's like, the government will figure out a way to redistribute this land. It, you know, the cost is, you know, we'll figure something out, but that's not really what you should be thinking about. I'm asking you whether you want to support this or not. And that was sort of the end of it. How does this connect back to what we were just talking about, about like the Westlands inspiring religious fanaticism? And because I think that one of the reasons that the NLP is so fascinating to me is this ability that the folks who put their whole lives uh, sort of on hold to wage this battle like they they looked at the westlands and they saw something completely different as a possibility out there not these vast monoculture tracts of land and like you were saying there's nothing there there's work and camp but they saw it as possible possible to break that land down have it be family scale farms like run by the people that are working that landscape so they had this sort of religious vision of what was possible but what who's right in that moment like is is Dolores Huerta right to just be like that is a religious dream okay that is divinely inspired fine but that's where we have to be more practical than that I mean she literally says it's a nice dream that's what she yeah. said right literally said yeah. That part of it I understand. The part of yeah. it always kind of sticks with me is when she says farmers don't want to be farmers, and that that part is sort of like, well, I don't I don't think that's true. Many of these farm workers were farmers, right? Before, mm-hmm. right? like uh, mm-hmm. you know, every time somebody when they when she says that, I think about my dad who wants nothing more than to be in the dirt. And that idea that farm workers don't want to be farmers is I think is 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 silly. I think it's absurd. So then that puts that comment that that testimony into the big missed opportunity camp for you right like that's how you see it yeah definitely and i think you know uh i i think when i first came to this project the 160 acre limitation thing sounded like an interesting story and and the more that i learn about it and this the farther i've seen it go and the number of people who had bought into it um including the vet you know the vfw like the veterans of foreign war the National Farmers Union, you know, George Miller, um, you know, Adley Stevenson, 
like even like even to a certain degree Cecil Andrus, right, who was the Secretary of the Interior at the time, the more I was like, wow, they were close. Mm-hmm. They were really close, right? They had done feasibility studies, they had done environmental impact studies, you know, they had hired this economist by the name of Philip Levine to like figure out what it would do to the California economy if this happened. Like they were close. Mm-hmm. And what they were missing, maybe, is like the grassroots movement power. Part of it. Part of it was that they they, la- they lacked grassroots movement, like a real grassroots movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that the UFW could have brought. Could have brought that. Yeah. Maybe again. Maybe, UFW, maybe not. The UFW had its own <laughs> had its own issues by '77, right? I think what ended up happening was that the the terrain was changed. The game, the name of the game was changed, right? Like. If Carter wins that election, the Westlands, I think, disappears. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's this there's this moment where it looks it looks really promising. I asked Mario what he thought about an idea that had come up when I was recording the interviews for the original NLP podcast. As part of that process, I went to talk with Burj Bobulian, who was one of the original NLP organizers, and. For that interview, Mark Arax, who's a Fresno native and an acclaimed journalist, came with me. Mark really wanted to know if Burge thought that Westlands should simply never have been farmed. That no matter what, farming was a losing proposition out there. Here's how I asked Mario about this idea. What do you say to that, Mark, to, to like Mark's line of questioning along those lines? Like, should it have, should this have happened or should it just simply have been left the desert, never had water brought to it because we see what's happened both for communities out there and for the ecology of the place. I mean, I've had this argument with him before. Right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes he says the Westlands can only be farm- could have only been farmed at scale is what he says. Yeah. And uh, he says it's just not profitable any other way. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Mark, farming is not profitable in any way. It depends l- so heavily on subsidies mm-hmm. one way or the other. Whether you're talking about subsidies for large farms and bringing water to them to these 20, 30, 40,000 acre plots, or whether you're talking about subsidies to far, small farmers that helps them with marketing and distribution, et cetera, et cetera, right? The question isn't whether farmers should get subsidies or not. It's not possible to farm for a market without subsidies. Right. I mean, that's the thing. The Westlands is entirely subsidized by these huge state and federal water projects. Who are you giving subsidies to? Right. And so subsidies are supposed to be in the public interest, right? In the, in the, in the, in the interest of the public good. And we know that in subsidies to large scale farms does not serve a public good. It serves a private good. Mm-hmm. So that's the question we need to be asking ourselves. It's true that maybe a third of the Westlands has fantastic soil, right? And produces and you know is is incredibly fertile and all it needs its water but mark is correct in the fact that at least two-thirds of it is dirt i mean it's sand it's nothing right like it's unusable mm-hmm. uh, and should not have been farmed in that sense right in an ecological sense i i, I sort of in ecologically would, would it be ecologically devastated by large-scale by farming yeah but then our you know if we think about farming stuff agroecologically could you use that that dirt, that sand, right, in ways that would improve health soil, improve, you know, um, biodiversity, 
uh, improve the, the nutrients, you know, like there, there's a way to do that. People farm on all kinds of, pro all, all kinds of land. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And you can't look at that dirt now, 50 years of plundering has happened. You can't look at that land now and say, well, this isn't good farmland. Like it's been destroyed for decades. And the people by, who tend to rehabilitate lands like that or who tend to make marginalized lands into something that can bloom are like the immigrant populations who come to the valley and, you know, are scrappy and make it work on these pieces of land. And that's exactly, I mean, that's what part of the vision was, right? For like turning over that land to people who could give it some care because it was going to be theirs. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is the, I mean, that's the big thing, right? Is like, I, when I ever, whenever I give this talk to like students and, you know, go to the public and give the talk about the paper, about the book, I say, you know, why do we care? Why do we care if it's 30,000 acres, 40,000 acres, et cetera, et cetera? Like, why does anybody care? Right. And what I keep coming back to is it's corporate, for corporations, this is a, this is a, a part of their portfolio, right? This is not, they are not stewards of the land, right? Okay. And there is no interest in protecting the land if it doesn't make a profit, right? And, you know, they can, you know, turn over, uh, you know, 10, they can let 20,000 acres lay fallow, not because they think it's good for the soil, but because it's good for the market, right? And so when you have people who are stewards of the land, they're looking at it generationally. They're looking at it 100 years from now, and corporations just don't have that kind of foresight. Right. Right. Well, the place that I ended the NLP podcast, so that version of the story um, was with uh, John Haywood, who is now, you know, up living at Sun Mountain, <laughs> where the National Land for People headquarters was. And he sort of says, you know, maybe I don't think the idea of the NLP is dead. It's just been weathering a drought. It's there. There's like this this seed of an idea, you know, about what is possible in the valley here. And maybe it's just dormant. We like, and on an ecological timeline, it hasn't really been that long. What do you think about that? Like, is that is is there hope for this idea? It's not just a seed of an idea. I think it's bigger than that. I think it's it's the only alternative that's staring us in the face. It has to be, or else we're all going to die. You know what I mean? Like, we don't we don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. You're we're running out of land. We're running out of space. We're running out of air. We're running out of water. Like it, that's the only that's the only like, but yeah, people are trying to hedge their bets with this idea of sustainable capitalism, but it's just that's just not going to work, right? I and mean, we have to think about we have to come up with alternative solutions uh, and alternative ways to feed people and grow food, or else you know we're looking at at, at like extinction level events, right? I mean, like we're looking at the end of uh, sort of farming as we know it. The end of farming as we know it. Yeah, I think Mario has me convinced that this story is relevant today. We in the food movement have to clear our vision, stare hard into the future, and dream a hundred-year dreams. The National Land for People torch, lit more than 30 years ago, could help us see the possibilities for a just future. The times are uncertain, so maybe we can draw a little bit on their certainty. This is Calag Roots podcast number eight, and our second Digging Deep podcast. Calag Roots is a project of the California Institute for Rural Studies, and you can check out our work at www.agroots.org. That's agroots.org. 
We owe a huge thank you, of course, to Dr. Mario Cifuentes for sharing his thoughts with us. And the Calag Roots theme music that you heard here is by Nangdo. Please subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And leave us a review to help spread the word. Thanks, and hope you tune in next time.